Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. We continue our Heart Failure series with this gem of an episode where Duke Cardiology Fellows Dr. Raul Longani and Dr. Kelly Arps will be learning from Dr. Robert Mentz, the Director of the Heart Failure Section in the Duke Division of Cardiology. You'll remember Raul from Episode 17, which was a smash hit when he discussed the management of atrial fibrillation with Dr. John Pacini. Well, that episode was pure gold, and we were so impressed with Raul's leadership and education skills that we just knew we had to have him back on. Raul, thank you so much for joining us again. Guys, it's my pleasure. I had such a blast last time, and this time was no different. Well, there was actually one major difference. We brought on Dr. Kelly Arps to take the cardio nerds to new heights. Kelly completed medical school at Emory University School of Medicine and internal medicine residency training at our beloved OSER program at Johns Hopkins Hospital. She is now absolutely crushing it as a first-year cardiology fellow at Duke. Thanks, Rahul, for that introduction, and thanks, Cardio Nerds, for inviting me on. I'm really excited for this episode, in which we will be discussing several key management aspects of HEFPEF, diuretics, RNA drugs, SGLT2 inhibitors, GLP-1 agonists, and iron infusion therapy. Kelly, inviting you on was just a no-brainer. Now, I know you for the stellar and brilliant person and doctor you are, but I'd like to share some comments so our audience can get to know you just as well. Your chief resident, Dr. David Forfaro, who was also on the Cardio Nerd Show, said the following about you. Kelly is a passionate and skilled teacher, really viewed as a top teacher by all of her interns. She's a skilled clinician and winner of the Priya Palagumi Award, which is given annually to the resident who embodies Priya Palagumi's passionate spirit as a caring physician, an ardent advocate for colleagues, and an inspiring role model for women physicians in training. The recipient exemplifies the ulcer tradition through leadership, strength of character, and unswerving pursuit of excellence. Wow. And if that weren't enough, Kelly was also editor-in-chief of the Ulcer Survival Guide. Wow, that is impressive. And like Ahmed said, inviting Kelly was an absolute total no-brainer. In fact, I had the opportunity of working with Kelly in the trenches, in the CCU. On many occasions, I was the fellow, she was the resident. She basically led a tight ship. She just was so good by her patients and really advocated for her patients' families as well. So Kelly, this was a real treat. Would you take away with the honors? Of course. Friends, just remember, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning more about cardiology directly from expert cardio nerds. This is such an incredible episode, and Dr. Mintz really goes over some very practical and high-yield aspects of managing heart failure. We recorded this episode before the COVID-19 reached pandemic proportions. Since then, it seems like the world is a different place with far-reaching implications. As a master clinical trialist, we asked Dr. Menz to discuss the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on heart failure trials. Hear his perspective at the very end. Also, we apologize for some of the office sounds in the recording, but for all of you who spend as much time in the hospital as we do, you'll feel right at home with this cacophony of familiar sounds. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Unless, of course, you're working out, in which case, go you! I'm thrilled to introduce our expert discussant for today. This is Dr. Robert Mentz. Dr. Mentz completed internal medicine training at Brigham and Women's Hospital and cardiology fellowship, followed by advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology training at Duke University Hospital and the Duke Clinical Research Institute. He's the new director of the heart failure section in the Duke Division of Cardiology. His areas of clinical and research focus include treating comorbid diseases in heart failure patients. He serves as a leader in the clinical trials Transform, Paraglide, HeartFid, and Impulse, and is heavily involved in many other clinical trials. He also serves as the Associate Editor at Circulation Heart Failure. In addition to his clinical and research endeavors, Dr. Mentz is heavily invested in the Cardiology Fellowship here, where he serves as Associate Program Director and renowned mentor, for which he has won many fellow-nominated awards. Finally, as former director of the Duke University Cooperative Cardiovascular Society, he expanded the network of current and former Duke trainees to be a leading enroller in clinical trials. 
We have the privilege today of speaking with Dr. Mentz as a follow-up to our previous discussion on HFPATH. In particular today, Dr. Mentz, we hope to pick your brain about recent advances in medical therapy for HFPATH and the future of novel therapies in this realm. Thank you so much for making the time to be with us here today. Great. Thank you all for the opportunity. Dr. Mentz, there was a slide in your first fellows conference talk that reminded us in heart failure, congestion is bad and decongestion is good. We've all known that since medical school, but sometimes the art of keeping patients decongested is more challenging. I want to start with a really practical question. What's your framework for titrating diuretics within the episodic visit nature of outpatient medicine? Great. So it's an excellent question that really comes up every day in heart failure management. I think some key pearls around diuretics are based on historical precedents. We really most commonly start with furosemide in these patients. And obviously there's some art that goes into this, but often we'll start with a, a lower dose and better understand the treatment response. Um, so most commonly a dose of 40 milligrams daily is used. Sometimes we dose that twice a day as needed. But some kind of key thoughts around it are understanding the dose matters. And I think we have a better understanding of that in acute heart failure as we make it into some. But often if, if patients aren't responding to the dose you're giving them, giving it additional times per day is, is usually not the approach. They usually need a higher dose. So thinking dose escalation is needed to decongest patients both I think as an outpatient as well as in the inpatient setting. Um, and then some really important points are around it are thinking of when is the right time to add additional therapies or consider switching their loop diuretic, which I think we'll get into uh, in a few moments here. But some key pearls are that in general, when you're decongesting a patient, they'll often feel better before they actually are fully decongested. So getting a good sense on exam looking at their jugular venous pressure of, of how things are actually looking is the most common strategy. Speaking of other loop diuretics, furosemide was the first to market in the 1960s, and it's still our go-to for most patients with a new diagnosis of heart failure. But I've seen commonly that when someone has volume overload refractory to a high dose of furosemide, that's when we start talking about transitioning to torsemide. What are some of the mechanistic benefits of torsemide over furosemide? And then also, are there certain patient characteristics that you've seen that suggest that someone may have a better response to torsemide than furosemide? So this is an area we've been very interested in, or better understanding the optimal loop diuretic for patients. In general, what we've seen is that as we try to escalate furosemide doses and patients aren't responding appropriately, that's when we often think of transitioning to torsemide. Some institutions actually consider transition to other loop diuretics like bumetanide, some of the key underpinnings of, from a pharmacologic profile are that with furosemide, you see more inter and intra-observer variability. Hmm. So what that means is that an individual patient, as their volume status changes or their renal function changes, the bioavailability may change hmm. for them, and it'll respond differently in different patients too. Uh, whereas with torsemide, you really get less of that variability for an individual patient related to the pharmacologic profile. So it is more bioavailable, uh, torsemide that is, as compared to furosemide. In addition, the half-life is longer for torsemide, and it, it is not affected by food and, and other things, whereas furosemide is. So those are some of the common things that people will cite, but I think importantly, there are also mechanistic studies and some preclinical and even some clinical studies that suggest that with torsemide, you get anti-aldosterone effects, hmm. you get anti-fibrotic effects, and there's some evidence that there might be differences in terms of potassium management as well. Uh, so that's been an area that we focus a lot on. I think most commonly in the clinical practice, people will cite, oh, if someone's not responding to furosemide, they have more gut edema, think about torsemide. But I think what's, what we're really excited about is some of these other potential mechanistic benefits and some suggestions and mostly observational, non-randomized or non-blinded studies that have suggested that torsemide may be better. And as primary investigator, can you talk about the ongoing TRANSFORM HF trial? Sure. So TRANSFORM is a pragmatic trial. Uh, what that means is trying to change elements of the clinical trial as well as the patient population so that it's more mm -hmm. broadly applicable. And with the goal of trying to conduct this real-world comparative effectiveness study, but it's a comparison in an open-label fashion of furosemide and torsemide. So it's looking at patients that are identified during a hospitalization for acute heart failure, uh, with a plan that they're going to go home on loop diuretics. So it has pretty broad eligibility criteria that really, as long as they're not end-stage renal disease or have some other comorbidity that's going to lead to an earlier death, that they'd be appropriate for this trial. 
following the consent procedure and, and checking all the boxes in terms of eligibility criteria. It's randomization of furosemide or torsemide. The dose is selected by the clinician hmm. and it's open label, meaning that both the patients and the providers will know what therapy they're randomized to. And the goal is to keep those patients on the randomized therapy uh, with dose titrations as needed clinically and then looking at endpoints of clinical outcomes. Primary endpoint is all-cause mortality. Uh, we'll be looking at additional key endpoints around rehospitalization, as well as quality of life, depression, and adherence. So at present time, we have just over 1,700 patients recruited out of a planned 6,000. Uh, so we've come a long way. We still got to have a good ways to go. Uh, but I think importantly, at the end of the day, we'll get a better understanding around potential clinical outcome benefits as we hypothesize that torsamide is better, but still await those outcomes data. That would be fantastic to finally have some data behind this empiric thing we've done with loop diuretics uh, for so many years. So, so thanks for helping provide some evidence in that space. Um, I do want to shift our focus a little bit right now to sort of how you set a patient up after an initial hospitalization for heart failure. We know that's a poor um, sentinel event with consequences thereafter. When you see a patient in the hospital who's hospitalized for HEFPEF outside of decongestion, what is your checklist of things you like to go through um, both in the hospital and as you set them up as an outpatient to make sure we've ruled out or um, their workup? What are your primary and secondary goals after you after you see these patients in the hospital? Great. So really important question. So I think Early on, better understanding what led to this decompensation. I think you highlighted it nicely. When patients are in the hospital, that should set off alarm bells. It's a poor prognostic marker. Things have really changed for that individual. Uh, So better understanding what led to that specific decompensation. Often it involves a thorough physical exam and history, laboratory investigations to understand, is this their thyroid is off now? Is this actually a medication that could have been contributing to to worsening of heart failure symptoms. It's this underlying ischemia, arrhythmia, kind of teasing out some of these differences. So better understanding the underlying reason for the exacerbation and trying to mitigate or to treat those as best you can. Um, And then you highlighted nicely, so decongestion has been a primary foundational piece of the hospitalized period, but really some critical pieces are getting patients on evidence-based therapies. So the hospitalized period I think increasingly appreciated is such an important time to get patients on the right therapies. So fortunately for reduced ejection fraction heart failure patients, we know many of those therapies now and the, the idea of getting them on those therapies and titrating up as best we can during the hospital stay. But also for both reduced ejection fraction and preserved ejection fraction heart failure, the idea of identifying and treating comorbidities, that those often lead to worsening of heart failure. And is this actually, should we Think about either some of the new diabetes therapies. Do we need to just overall manage their diabetes better? Is this their underlying lung disease? Is this iron deficiency? So thinking about these comorbid conditions, as we'll talk a little bit more about later today, but treating those conditions, getting patients on the right heart failure therapies, the right other therapies, thinking, is this a time to to talk about things like palliative care in terms of their trajectory? Um, is this a time, a trigger that we need to think about advanced therapies, if that might be a possibility? So having those conversations, importantly, understanding the patient's goals of care and the idea, I think that many of us have focused on this idea of shared decision-making and, and really providing optimal care in the setting of the patient's goals and wishes. But then as you really noted, this idea of this transition phase to the outpatient setting, we certainly appreciate the importance of getting an early outpatient follow-up visit But communication is really key. This idea of can we communicate better to their routine outpatient providers, to the patient, their families, and the entire kind of team that is often supporting these patients during this transition period, since that really is a critical time to make sure things don't fall through the cracks. Um, But early touch uh, points in the outpatient clinic or by phone after uh, are really important. So in summary, I think it's identifying the causes, helping them feel better through decongestion, getting on the right medications for heart failure as well as the other comorbid diseases, and then making sure we have a good transition of care to the outpatient setting. Fantastic. One area of difficulty that we commonly see while patients are in these hospitalizations as we're um, using diuretics to really try and decongest them is this adverse effect of worsening renal function or at least rising creatinine despite the patient still be volume up. Do you have any practical tips for how to adjust diuretics or how to view worsening renal function in the setting of decongestion? Yeah, so the kidney's tricky here. And I think that's kind of an important message. But some pearls are that the, the rule of threes. So in general, about 30% of heart failure patients will have an increase in creatinine as defined by 
0.3 milligrams per deciliter within three days. Mm. So this is super common. That's the most commonly used definition of worsening renal function. And it occurs pretty early. Um, and in general, is we've looked at this in a lot of different studies and others, I think, have done a nice job of trying to tease out about worsening renal function and prognostic significance. Um, so some key messages are that the key hemodynamic drivers of worsening renal function are often still congestion. So the right atrial pressure is the one that most strongly correlates with worsening renal function. So if someone is still very much congested when you examine them and their renal function is getting worse, usually it's still you got to keep diuresing. I think this is this what you all as fellows know and, and many appreciate that sometimes you need more information. So if you're really uncertain on their physical exam and you, you think you're really doing the right thing by decongesting them, but their renal function is still getting worse, that's where I think a right heart cath and better understanding their filling pressures and hemodynamic status can be really important. This idea of we've focused a lot thus far on decongestion, but you all know well the, the kind of four squares around perfusion and volume status. And if you're trying to decongest someone, but they're not actually warmed up yet, whether that's an opportunity to use something like an inotrope as needed in that select patient population, realizing that there are pros and cons to that approach. But the idea of better understanding the hemodynamics with the right heart cath can be really helpful. But in summary, I think the pearls are, this is going to be common. You're going to encounter this a lot. Usually you need to keep decongesting these patients, but when it's a confusing picture, think about getting more information and collaborate with renal colleagues and others. All great things to remember. Yeah. So now we're going to move on to a new topic, and we're going to talk more about other forms of pharmacologic therapy, specifically for HEFPEF. And unfortunately, the story of HEFPEF has been full of you know, negative trials with particularly with regards to hard endpoints like mortality. Some of the most exciting data recently has been in surrounding the new class of angiotensin neprilysin inhibitor class of drugs. Just a quick reminder for the listeners, the combination neprilysin inhibitor and angiotensin receptor blocker, Entresto, first showed benefit in patients with chronic HEFREF. That was in the Paradigm trial, where it was shown to reduce the rate of a composite endpoint of heart failure hospitalization and death from cardiovascular causes when it was compared to an ACE inhibitor alone. Then the drug was trialed in patients with HEF-PEF. Paragon trial was designed to investigate whether Entresto reduced the combined outcome of heart failure hospitalization or cardiovascular death in stable patients with HEF-PEF. It didn't meet statistical significance for a difference in outcomes with this primary endpoint. But Dr. Mintz, I'd love to hear your thoughts more about both the primary and secondary outcomes of this trial, particularly when it comes to quality of life. Also, what are your thoughts about the certain subgroups that saw more benefit than others? Well, thanks so much. I, I think first I'd start by complimenting the Paragon investigators. It was a very well-designed study. These HEFPEF programs are very hard to conduct. Um, you highlighted nicely. So this was an active comparator. So in this, in the HEFPEF case, it compared to Valsartan. So scubitavalsartan versus valsartan uh, with an ejection fraction that was uh, greater than or equal to 45. Uh, and then it additionally added nitritic peptide cut points and others. And importantly, as you noted, it was a narrow miss. It's the language that's been used in terms of the primary endpoint. So a modest relative reduction, but it did not meet statistical significance as pre-specified with a p-value of, of just over 0.05. Um, and in general, as you look at that, the curves for cardiovascular death, one of the key components are pretty much superimposable. But importantly, as you look at the heart failure rehospitalization piece, which importantly, the primary endpoint, it was not just time to first hospitalization, it was the total burden of heart failure hospitalization. Mm -hmm. There was a numerical decrease there with scubitovalsartan or ARNI therapy. So it, while it did not meet statistical significance from a primary endpoint, uh, and then obviously we can't look at the, the secondary endpoints. From there, including the individual components, it suggests a numerical reduction in heart failure hospitalization. As you're getting at some important key secondary endpoints around quality of life, so it used the Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire, which Paradigm also looked at in HEFREF patients, and there was a modest improvement in um, the cases you being higher as more favorable quality of life. So it, it was numerically slightly more favorable with RNA therapy just narrowly missing there in terms of statistical significance, but overall a fairly modest benefit for quality of life. There were important signals potentially around renal function. So one of the hmm. endpoints actually suggesting there might be a numerical benefit in terms of renal dysfunction. But I think another really important message is overall for the safety signals. So what it showed us in a huge number of patients, 
looking at hyperkalemia, renal function, hypotension. This was actually quite safe in terms of the, the comparison with valsartan alone, it suggested the potential for a numerical reduction in heart failure hospitalization, of which we've really struggled in this patient population without strong clinical outcome benefit with other therapies. And there were some important subgroups, as you've noted. So looking at the median split, so with in the trial, the median ejection fraction was 57%. Uh, and so those patients actually had a lower ejection fraction. It looked like they uh, might actually have a benefit with this th therapy as compared to those with a higher ejection fraction. And similarly, women as a subgroup seem to have a potential benefit that was not seen uh, in men. So I think this has led many to hypothesize of potential reasons behind this. I think we always pause and take as, with a grain of salt any of these subgroup analyses, especially when you have a primary endpoint that it does not meet statistical significance. But in general, as we look at the totality of evidence with ARNI therapy, it really looks like those certainly with reduced ejection fraction benefit with the therapy for clinical outcome benefit. But then this mid-range up to the lower portion of the so-called preserved group, they, they may actually stand to benefit from this therapy. Uh, and I think it has led many of us to question, you know, about the dichotomy of reduced and preserved ejection fraction, this mid-range group that I think we're still trying to better understand. It's led some to hypothesize around HEFPEF in general uh, and wondering, you know, is this actually, if you have an average age in the 70s, you know, is this actually amyloid or something in the, the men that were enrolled in the trial? Maybe that's why there wasn't a benefit uh, in that subgroup. So I think lots of different hypotheses out there. But I think still much is needed to better understand the trial. And a number of important publications have already come out. I'll highlight one that suggested that the event rate was certainly higher in those patients that they had a recent hospitalization. And then that the between group difference or the benefit of the therapy for the primary endpoint may have actually been significant in that group if they'd had a recent hospitalization. Mm -hmm. So certainly Paragon was an outpatient chronic HEFREF study uh, but if patients had had a recent hospitalization, the closer they were to that hospitalization, it looked like that group benefited potentially from the therapy. And as if you got further out from a hospitalization or had never been, had a hospitalization, you didn't see that between group difference or the benefit of RNA therapy. So I think leading many to think, you know, are this just a heterogeneous population? Is this hospitalization, as we've talked about, a sentinel event? Um, but also really is acute heart failure time a, a key point that might benefit these patients? I think those are really important subgroups that you highlighted there. And just as a sort of a follow-up question, have you started translating this into your clinical practice? So if you have a patient sort of in the, the heart failure, mid-range ejection fraction group, or patients who are recently hospitalized for HEFPEF, are you now reaching for, if, if they need a, a blood pressure agent, um, reaching for an ARNI as opposed to an ACER arm? Um, and then just from a practical standpoint for patients who are starting ARNIs, um, what are the practical tips around starting it? How do you wash out ACEs and ARBs and, and what dose you start at, et cetera? Yeah, so in terms of use of ARNI and mid-range to PEF, mm -hmm. unfortunately, it's not really available yet for many of those patients. Certainly, if they do have some evidence of recent lower ejection fraction, you could get that therapy mm -hmm. potentially. Certainly, there are cost considerations mm -hmm. around that as well. But I think we're still kind of in the early phase of understanding the, the PEF experience and have ongoing studies in that space, which we may get to a little bit. But in terms of really practical guidance around ARNI initiation, so I think importantly, we have strong evidence now from Pioneer about in-hospital initiation. It's a very important and well-conducted study looking at reduced ejection fraction. And really, if patients were stabilized as defined by a couple key criteria, but really if their systolic blood pressure was greater than or equal to 100 and were otherwise stable, starting this therapy was shown to have important reductions in the primary endpoint of brown nitrated peptides, but also clinical outcome benefit with reduction in heart failure hospitalization. So this idea, as we talked earlier, of trying to get these patients on the right therapies in the, the hospital period is an important time to do that. So I think the key pearl is consider starting in the hospital. Mm -hmm. We have strong evidence around that. It's a, a sentinel event. But also in the early period post-hospitalization, if they're not already on it, or routinely all of your patients, if they fit this reduced ejection fraction criteria, strongly consider either initiating if they're not already on an ACE or ARB or transitioning from ACE or ARB to ARNI. Importantly around that, usually what I'll do in clinic is I'll check their basic metabolic panel, understand their potassium and their renal function. If they're on an ACE inhibitor, you need a 36-hour washout period before starting ARNI. So practically speaking, usually what I'll say is we'll check your labs, make sure things look okay. 
we'll prescribe this for you, make sure you can pick it up if it's not too expensive. Sometimes there are prior offs and other things we need to fill out, just paperwork around that. But I say, wait until you get the medicine at home. And then if they're on an ACE inhibitor, I have them stop that. Usually I'll stay for two days and then start your Arnie just so they're on a good schedule. And then I'll repeat labs a week thereafter. Um, but really some other important pros, if they have a history of angioedema, Arnie therapy should not be used. And I also have really emphasized, do not take both. You really need to stop your ACE or ARB, completely put an X through it on the bottles, get rid of it, and then uh, do, use Arnie therapy because it's just confusing with polypharmacy. Many of these patients are on six, seven, eight medicines. We want to make sure they're not taking both because that certainly does happen in practice. Makes sense. Great. And you alluded to these patients who, who may have a recovered ejection fraction. We don't see it nearly as often as we'd like, but you know, particularly for patients with causes of cardiomyopathy like peripartum cardiomyopathy, Takotsubo's, tachymyopathy. You know, we certainly see some patients who have a very low ejection fraction get started on the right therapy for HEF-REF and now have a normal or near-normal ejection fraction. How do you classify those people in your mind when it comes to ongoing medical therapy? And do you keep them on all of the medications you would classically prescribe for HEF-REF? Um, do you try and start any of those medications if they're not already on them? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think still an area where we have a lot to learn. But in general, when patients have a reduced ejection fraction, we really should get them on at least triple therapy and now maybe quadruple therapy, meaning ASARB-RNA beta blocker, MRA, and think about SGLT2 inhibitors, which will come through. Uh, but then really we do have some evidence that those patients, many of them should remain on those therapies lifelong, which is certainly a challenge as we think, especially as you highlighted peripartum uh, or some of the potentially patient populations that are younger. And we think about pregnancy and women and the needs to come off of some of these therapies during uh, those times, even if they have recovered, just given some of the teratogenic effects with ACE inhibitors and, and potential around ARNI. Um, but in general, I start all my patients on these and would plan to continue them uh, lifelong. We have some evidence from the TREAD trial and others that suggest that if actually in some of these patients, when you peel off or come off these therapies, their EF may get worse again. And I think having good conversations with your patients about understanding so they understand what your goals are, because it's, it's confusing to think for many of these patients, we want to get you on all these therapies. And then even if you're feeling better, we often continue to increase the dose of them to the dose that we used in clinical trials. So I talked through that. And then, you know, I think many patients and physicians and clinicians in general, we often focus on the ejection fraction. Um, that's one piece of the puzzle. So I think that's an important piece, but I want to make sure that that's not the only piece patients are, are focusing on as we're moving forward. And that can get confusing as, as we think, oh, don't you need to repeat my ejection fraction? No, you're feeling better. You're on the right therapies. Uh, so I think talking through some of those things that are important from a patient perspective around ejection fraction recovery are also critical. Absolutely. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about the future clinical trials for ARNIs. You're the primary investigator in the ongoing Paraglide trial. What is the goal of that trial? So Paraglide was designed to be an inpatient initiation of ARNI and HEFPEF study looking at safety. Uh, the hope was that Paragon will be positive and then similar to how Pioneer showed the inpatient setting it uh, for reduced ejection fraction, we wanted to mirror that, be ready to go with HEFPEF. Unfortunately, as we've noted, we missed the mark on Paragon and chronic uh, HEFPEF. So we've transitioned the study a little bit and amended it. So it's gone from a 600-patient trial to an 800-patient trial in hospital initiation. We have continued to maintain the active comparator, so it is Valsartan. We talked about whether we could consider a placebo as a comparator. But our primary endpoint is still natriuretic peptide levels. So it stabilized acute heart failure in the hospital, but also importantly, based on the Paragon data, we allow inclusion within the first 30 days of discharge as well. So it's looking at RNA as compared to Valsartan in the hospital or within 30 days of discharge, a primary endpoint, looking at natriuretic peptide change at four and eight weeks as was in Pioneer, but we're gonna continue patients on therapy longer. So up to 20 months collecting clinical events, and we prioritize two key secondary endpoints that are looking at a win ratio, which is like a hierarchical endpoint that looks at uh, death events as well as hospitalization events, the total burden of heart failure hospitalization, urgent outpatient visits as well. Uh, the DECLARE program and others recently in heart failure have looked at these urgent outpatient visits, meaning getting IV diuretics. 
So really the idea of can we prioritize some of these secondary endpoints around clinical outcomes to add to our knowledge of what we saw in Paragon and not only show safety, which is certainly at least supported to date by Paragon, but can we actually reduce nitritic peptide and improve clinical outcomes to potentially have a therapy that we could offer these patients? Amiris, did you hear a little bit more about why ProBNP was chosen as the primary endpoint in these trials? And in your opinion in general, what heart failure endpoints are going to be the most relevant to clinical practice in future trials? So nitritic peptide was chosen for the Paraglide program since, at least in the reduced ejection fraction program, the reduction in nitritic peptide level really coincides with the, the therapy itself and the clinical benefit some nice work by the earlier investigators with those trials demonstrated. So that was the rationale. It's a real strong surrogate that's associated with clinical outcomes, and it, it goes well with ARNI therapy. So in terms of what really matters to patients and other stakeholders, so certainly patients, I think, want to feel better, stay out of the hospital, live longer. Um, but there are certainly other components to that around functional status and, and otherwise. So I think as we think of trials moving forward, that there's been an emphasis on actually better partnering with patients to understand what endpoints matter. It may differ for different patients. That certainly increases complexity of trials as we think about primary endpoints. Um, but in general, this idea of maybe not just looking at time to first event, but actually of what we've seen in HEFPEF in particular, really the total burden of hospitalizations, maybe it's not even just heart failure hospitalization. And as we think of other clinical trials, not just looking at new medicines, but exercise training and otherwise, um, there'll be important studies coming up around this that'll actually look at different measures, including functional status and total burden of hospitalizations, including non-heart failure and non-CV hospitalizations. But I think it'll probably be a, a mix of these different endpoints. Great. And then um, sort of an important point that we've talked about uh, in circumspect here, but I think one of the reasons that, that people have discussed that these HEFPEF trials haven't shown any efficacy for any individual agent is that really there's a heterogeneous population uh, of patients here. As you mentioned, amyloid is, is sort of emerging as a common phenotype. How can investigators include and recruit a population of patients that best represents what we are, are traditionally thinking of as a clinical syndrome of HEFPEF? And, and how have you done that in the trials that you've designed or, or helped to design? It's a good question. We've still got a lot to, to learn about because we haven't had a lot of wins. So I think it's a nice comparison with Transform as we think about this sweet spot for pragmatism. But yeah, we want to try to make sure we're getting the right patient population. So it's this idea of efficacy versus effectiveness trials. Um, and in general, often the earlier phase studies, you really you have tons of inclusion and exclusion criteria to try to hone in on the population you think will benefit further. You know, I think Sanjeev Shah, Kavita Sharma, and others have done a really nice job around, are there ways we can better tease out the HEFPEF phenotype? And maybe we really need to do things differently than with reduced ejection fraction. And maybe it's not just you have HEFPEF, but are there different phenotypes with patients more obese and diabetic? Are there important sex-specific differences as we've talked some here today? So I think that is, people have some optimism around that approach, but I still think we've, we've got a lot to learn to better figure out how do we have the right trial design, including things like eligibility criteria, but also realizing these trials are complicated uh, and it, where heart failure recruitment in these trials is really slowed, particularly in the U.S., how do we find that sweet spot between making sure that these trials aren't taking forever to actually explore the safety and efficacy of these uh, potential medications so there's a lot to be done still. So thankfully, you guys are well poised <laughs> to help with, with the, the future generation here. Thank you. And I'd like to transition now to another class of drugs that are showing benefit in patients with heart failure. And these are some of the classes of glucose-lowering drugs. As Dr. Mans was talking about earlier, one of the mainstays of HEFPEF therapy is controlling comorbidities like ischemic disease, hypertension, et cetera. And diabetes control certainly is important. What, in your mind, Dr. Menz, is the significance of a patient with heart failure having a concurrent diagnosis of diabetes or vice versa? And do you view that any differently in patients with HEFPEF compared to HEFREF? Great point. So I think some kind of very important pearls around diabetes and heart failure. So it's very common. So certainly in the outpatient setting, about 25, 30% of patients that have heart failure also have diabetes. And in the in-hospital setting, it's even higher. So upwards of 40, 50%. So when you see heart failure, you often see diabetes with it. 
They're similarly common, maybe a little bit more common even in HEFPEF, but regardless of reduced or preserved ejection fraction, presence of diabetes as compared to the lack thereof is associated with worse quality of life, more hospitalizations, and increased mortality. And then the medications can both complicate it and potentially help the story, as we'll discuss. Um, so I think some important pearls around that are understanding what medications are being used to treat their diabetes. And we'll go through some of the classes actually have adverse heart failure effects. And now I think there's been a lot of excitement now around SGLT2 inhibitors, which were certainly developed for diabetes, but actually show this tremendous benefit in terms of improvements in heart failure patients. And, and now we'll get in some to the DAP-HF results, I'm sure, actually showing that in reduced ejection fraction patients, regardless of diabetes status, that uh, dapagliflozin and SGLT2 inhibitor improves clinical outcomes in a number of different quality of life measures and otherwise. So I think it's been an interesting journey uh, is something starting in diabetes, now transitioning to a heart failure medicine. And we eagerly await many of the HEFPEF studies that will be reporting out with some of the other compounds as well. Great. Well, let's talk first about some of those medications that do have adverse effects. So what classes of medications are those that are harmful for patients with cardiovascular disease? So some key ones is thinking around the TZDs or the glitazones. So those are contraindicated in heart failure patients. The second, the DPP-4 inhibitor story is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, it is not clearly a class effect. There are several medications in there, saxagliptin being the one with the largest effect, but suggesting a 27% increase in heart failure in diabetic patients. So really avoiding that one, allogliptin, the point estimate for heart failure is also not favorable. It wasn't significant in that program. Uh, but then you have citagliptin, where the hazard ratio of heart failure is right at 1%. So in general, it's not clearly a class effect. Citagliptin uh, actually looks okay, uh, but avoiding at least saxagliptin and potentially allogliptin as well. So that's an important point when you're looking at these patients in the outpatient setting or in the hospital. When they're on these therapies, don't just look at their heart failure therapies. What are they on for diabetes? We need to stop them or transition them. Um, those are some of the, the key pearls around which ones to avoid in the diabetes space. And then for SGLT2 inhibitors, now, it's, it's been a, a good evolution, but really, the, the, as we'll get into, that there are benefits for clinical outcomes. Um, the GLP-1 story is also a little bit confusing. So GLP-1s historically have been injectable. Now, semaglutide is a, a therapy. There's an oral formulation of that. But those uh, medications in diabetic patients have shown that they can reduce MACE, meaning major adverse cardiovascular events or CV death, MI, and stroke. There isn't a clear, strong reduction in heart failure hospitalization. In the meta-analysis, looking at all of these different, there have been now been seven different large trials, there might be a, a modest reduction in heart failure hospitalization. Uh, but we and others have shown some concerns that some of the benefits of GLP-1s on reduction in mortality you may not see in heart failure patients. So I have a little bit of pause around that. And then also, importantly, there have been two studies. I'll highlight one the FIGHT-HF, which actually looked at loraglutide, a GLP-1, in heart failure reduced ejection fraction patients with a recent hospitalization mm. and showed a numerical imbalance, actually worse clinical outcomes maybe with loraglutide. Mm. It wasn't statistically significant. It's a small study, not powered for that. Uh, but I'm a little bit more concerned about the GLP-1 space potentially in contrast to SGLT-2 inhibitors, which appear quite safe and effective. Got it. Um you mentioned that there's some trials coming out with, with these SGLT2 uh, inhibitor class medications in HEFPEF. Um, would you mind talking a little bit more about that? Um, what do we know so far, um, potentially in observational studies, et cetera, about SGLT2 inhibitors in HEFPEF? And what do you expect to see sort of optimistically uh, from these trials that are, that are coming out? Yeah, so I think certainly I hope they work. It'd be nice to have a, another tool in our, or a tool in our toolkit. <laughs> Uh, for particularly preserved ejection fraction heart failure. But there are a number of different studies that are ongoing with each of these different compounds um, in the SGLT2 inhibitor class. Um, many of them are looking in the outpatient setting, so chronic, HEF-PEF. Many of them have primary endpoints of CV death and heart failure hospitalization, often time to first event, as well as secondary endpoints around quality of life and other measures. Uh, there are a couple programs going on in the inpatient setting as well. Uh, the SOLOIST trial and EMPULSE trial um, I'll highlight Mpulse is, is one example where it's looking at reduced and preserved ejection fraction patients in the hospital, stabilized in the early period, 24 hours up to five days after the admission, but still in the hospital 
and looking at starting these therapies. Mpulse is 500 patients looking at a 90-day endpoint of a, kind of a global rank of clinical composite. I think what many of us hope is that the idea of starting these therapies, if it helps patients improve diabetes if they have that, um, but then even if they don't have that, uh, we help them feel better and, and improve some of these clinical outcomes, that would just be great. Uh, importantly, there have been some studies that have looked in the top-line results from the Imperial program, which looked at empagliflozin in, in functional status, uh, that was reported out as neutral, so it did not improve mm-hmm. functional status. Uh, so I, I don't put too much weight on that as we await the clinical outcome studies, but it's not clearly a slam dunk. So we, I think we need the large programs to better understand HFPEF as well. Got it. And I have a few rapid fire questions for the clinicians who are listening about clinically using these drugs, particularly SGLT2 inhibitors. So first off, are you as a cardiologist starting your patients on these medications that have traditionally been in the realm of diabetes management? Yeah, so I try to, at present time, if patients have diabetes and heart failure, try to get them on an SGLT2 inhibitor and communicate with their other providers. Thus far, I have not had good success if they don't have diabetes, have not been able to really get them covered. Hmm. So we still await those pieces. Mm-hmm. And are these drugs fixed dose or are some of them dose titratable? So that's... Thus far, there really are fixed dose, which is, for instance, with empagliflozin, uh, the 10 milligram dose is the one that was used um, and is being used in the ongoing Emperor program. So it is nice in contrast to, as you think of most of our HEF-REF therapies, we're continuing to titrate up these doses. It really is fixed dose. And when you're starting an SGLT2 inhibitor for your patients with heart failure, how do you counsel them about these agents? So in general, the, I say that they're actually have been shown to be very safe. Kind of key considerations around it are um, the mycotic genital infection. So I talk about um, general hygiene, showering at least once a day, cleaning that area well, and then just so they understand potential considerations around that. Uh, We talk about volume status. A lot of questions come up around, do I need to empirically reduce my loop diuretic? Um, I don't empirically do that because as we talked earlier, many of these patients tend to live a little bit more congested, but Mm. in, in some patients where their volume status has been more of an issue if they've had problems with dehydration um, that, that might be necessary. It can be important if you're thinking about starting multiple medications. So if you're thinking Arnie and SGLT2, I often stagger them a little so that uh, you can better understand volume status um, and any blood pressure changes around that. So you don't then say, oh, did both of these therapies cause some side effect? But I really like the idea of trying to get all of these patients on these therapies, but just doing it in a thoughtful manner. The kind of other important thing we do need to talk about is this euglycemic DKA yeah. picture, which many patients that have diabetes may have some familiarity with the idea of feeling really poorly with abdominal discomfort, nausea, vomiting, and being off from having problems with their blood sugars. But if you're a non-diabetic, it, they may have no familiarity with that at all. So I talk through some of that with patients, hmm. and, and there are some important handouts that, that you can use to talk through that because it's an area where you, there have been some cases of this. So I think it's important that providers know it when we're taking care of patients on SGLT2 inhibitors and that the patients have familiarity that if they are feeling off with nausea, vomiting, abdominal stuff, that they need to reach out to their clinical team. That's great. Really helpful. Is there a resource where we can find those handouts for our patients? So we've developed a couple here. Um, We should provide some links um, to those. Um, And then certainly there are guidance documents. I think probably the most helpful guidance documents, both the American Diabetes Association as well as Jack has published some really nice pathways around the use of these that just kind of get these on your radar of what do I need to be thinking about for renal function? Because at present time, SGLT2 inhibitors have labeling. Uh, the, the renal function GFR cut points vary for some of them. And then what do you do if renal function worsens? Do we need to hold some of these? So that the Jack article nicely goes through some of those key considerations. Great. And then as far as the big four classes of medications for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction go, what's your order of operations for starting these medications in a patient who may be naive to most or all of them? So at present time, I think we need to get ASARB Arnie on board and beta blocker on board. Um, given the Pioneer data and others, I think getting Arnie on, uh, that importantly looked at de novo patients, um, as well as kind of these ACE and ARB naive. So I I think starting with ARNI is appropriate. It's a class one indication. Um, Some of the flow charts and consensus pathways still prioritize ACE, ARB. I think we have good evidence around starting ARNI first in beta blocker therapy, making sure you're using an evidence-based beta blocker therapy. So really getting on those and titrating up the dose, 
You don't, certainly don't need to wait um, to, that you're on mass dose Arnie before you add beta blocker, uh, but getting on those and getting on MRA. So that's particularly in the U.S., we do a pretty lousy job still, unfortunately, in terms of our overall uptake of MRAs. It's only about 30, maybe 40% of eligible patients. So getting on those three therapies and then say if they were on an ACE inhibitor rather than already switching over as appropriate. And then if they're diabetic, certainly getting them on an SGLT2 inhibitor. Um, and hopefully the landscape will change a little bit and we'll be able to get those non-diabetic patients with reduced ejection fraction SGLT2 inhibitor too. But it's a lot to process. Yeah. So I think really talking to patients and talking about your eventual goals and what this timeline is going to look like and figure out what works best for them because it doesn't matter what we prescribe uh, if it's not really a team-based approach involving the patient kind of in line with their wishes. Absolutely. One, you know, you mentioned comorbidities in, in heart failure. I think one sort of last uh, realm of this that you're involved in is um, iron deficiency uh, surrounding heart failure. In particular, what do we know about iron deficiency, iron repletion, and heart failure, and, and what is the evidence of that in HEFPEF specifically? Yeah, so in summary, I'd say iron deficiency is very common in heart failure, both reduced and preserved ejection fraction. It's common even if you're not anemic. I think many of us think patient comes into the hospital, they're anemic, send iron studies. It's very common in the inpatient and outpatient setting, even if you're not anemic. Hmm. So don't completely anchor in on anemia. Um, there are smaller, modest-sized studies that have looked at mostly functional status with IV iron, um, specifically ferrocarboxymaltose, that show improvements in functional status and quality of life. Um, mostly in reduced ejection fraction, but several of those programs went up to an ejection fraction of 45. Oral iron is not clearly absorbed and not uh, effective. So the iron out study looked at reduced ejection fraction patients with iron deficiency, gave oral iron, and the iron levels didn't even bump and no improvements in surrogate measures. So that consider stopping that and having that discussion with <laughs> patients. Um, and we have an ongoing study now called HeartFit, which is looking at reduced ejection fraction patients who are iron deficient uh, in giving IV ferrocarboxymaltose every six months, then looking at clinical outcomes. It's a long-term outcome study in 3,000 patients. Wow. There are a couple of trials going on in uh, Europe. Most of the studies to date have been in reduced ejection fraction. There is one HEF-PEF study ongoing. It's smaller, only a couple hundred patients. Uh, but I think holistically, we think, you know, it's probably not just acting on the heart in terms of iron deficiency, but skeletal muscle and otherwise. So I see the HEFPEF population as a potential huge opportunity here. And stay tuned. We'll hopefully have some studies in the pipeline around that. Fantastic. And then finally, as we sort of wrap up um, this segment on therapies or emerging therapies around HEFPEF, what do you see as the quote unquote GDMT um, guideline directed therapy in the, in the coming years for HEFPEF? Where do you see the field going? So I think there are important studies, which we haven't highlighted today, also looking at spironolactone. Mm -hmm. So currently right now, it's a class two recommendation in HEFPEF if you've had a hospitalization for heart failure and elevated nitritic peptide. Um, but I think many of us are starting that um, as long as renal function, potassium have been okay. So I think that has the potential and spirit and some of the other studies that are ongoing will hopefully provide further clarity around that. Hopefully SGLT2 inhibitors are a win and we've yeah. got a tool uh, to add to the mix there. But there are a number of other studies going on. I'll highlight one study that we'll report out in upcoming months looking at a multi-domain intervention um, actually started in acute heart failure patients um, that are over the age of 65 called, it's the Rehab HF trial, but it's looking at a physical therapy-driven multi-domain intervention. Uh, so I, I think it'll be thinking about the patient holistically and thinking about medications as well as behavioral and other interventions. Um, so stay tuned. I think it'll be an exciting time. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It seems like an exciting time at HEFPEF therapy, particularly as we're able to better phenotype these patients and stratify them to the right therapies. Um, one more question for you in the cardio nerds tradition. What makes your heart flutter about heart failure? So I have to be honest, it's really the people. This is such a great community. And what you realize is um, that the opportunity to work with folks like you that are the, the, really the next generation that are so eager and excited. You know, when I was your age, I didn't even know what a podcast was. <laughs> so this idea of really disseminating knowledge uh, and getting to hang out with each other um, at meetings uh, and other things, it's, it's really just an amazing opportunity to learn from other individuals. And it really is the people piece of this that really gets me excited. Fantastic. Thanks so much for being here with us today, Dr. Menson, for sharing all your knowledge. Great. Thank you all. Yeah.
Hey everybody, this is Rob Mentz. The group felt that it would be helpful to provide an additional update since we initially had recorded our heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and trial discussion to highlight how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted clinical trials throughout the world. I'll draw your attention to two important papers that have come out in this space, specifically one led by Bill Abraham published in Jack Heart Failure from the Heart Failure Collaboratory Group goes through in a succinct fashion how COVID-19 has impacted clinical trials and some of the regulatory aspects on how we need to adjust things and respond appropriately. In addition, there's another paper led by Stefan Anker that's published in the European Heart Journal that's a consensus paper with the HFA and the European Society of Cardiology that goes through some of the important points on COVID-19 and heart failure trials. I'll just draw your attention to a couple key points. Certainly, it is critical that we optimize the safety and well-being of our trial participants during this time, but also recognize and keep safe our study staff. In addition, it might be necessary to adapt specific clinical trials and transition planned in-person visits to remote visits with an attempt to collect as complete data as possible during this time. I'll also draw your attention to some of the recent guidance given from the regulators on this. Both the FDA and the EMA have specific documents that outline how clinical trials may need to be changed. Uh, They document details on collection of COVID infections uh, in a case report form, how this may impact the adjudication of clinical events, and also how a statistical analysis plan might need to be modified. So in conclusion, it's been a, a complicated landscape that seems to be rapidly evolving, but we do have some important updates and consensus documents now that can help inform our clinical trials during this time. But in summary, the important points are really safely recruiting and retaining patients, trying to collect as complete data as possible, keeping participants on study drug as is safe and appropriate, and making sure that we collect events both with respect to the overall protocol, but now also in addition to COVID status. Please, everyone, stay safe during this time and look forward to future podcasts. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.